Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome back to the waiting room revolution. We are so excited to have back on the show, Dr. Catherine Mannix from the UK. She is a palliative care physician for over three decades and is the author of the best-selling book, With the End in Mind. And she's just recently released her second book called Listen, which is available in bookstores now as a hardcover or as an audiobook. And I just got mine from a UK bookstore, Waterstones, which ships everywhere, including in the US and Canada. And we're very excited to have her back. I interviewed her for our spring series by myself, but we ran out of time. And so we've invited her back to chat more and to meet Sammy too. Hi. Hello. Lovely to meet you. Oh, lovely to meet you too. It's just so lovely to be with you. I'm just so honored to be invited. Thank you. Catherine, I'm so glad you're back on the show. Last time in our spring series, you only had 20 minutes, so we have a bit more time today. Um, And I know you've also had more time to listen to our podcast. So I'm really curious to know what you think about the seven skills that we came up with, things like walk to roads and zoom out, and just what you think of our whole mission in general. It's just so fantastic. And just... Just that expression of walking two roads that you've got right up at the top of your list, you know, that that's that's exactly right, isn't it? If we were if we had a kind of subpopulation of immortals, there'd only be one road. But so so it's not that this is for a particular group of people, is it? This is just this just applies to human beings. Yeah. Some of whom are lucky enough to know now what the illness is that they have to contend with that eventually will be their last illness but isn't yet Mm. and how do you get that information to them in a way that isn't terrifying how do we help you to live including the time during which you're dying Mm -hmm. to be you and to be the person you want to be and have things happen the way you you want them to happen and you Mm -hmm. can't make those choices unless somebody's given you the big picture can you and then all the different sorts of details that relate to the illness you've got and the person you are and, and how they meet each other yeah I, it's so worthwhile it's a brilliant project okay where have you been in my life <laughs> <laughs> in the UK we got to make a visit when we can travel oh yeah 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 that would be lovely so so yeah. so you know we haven't got it right here either Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my last 10 years were in a, in a hospital palliative care service. And the, again, we saying to people all of the time, listen, palliative care is about symptom management, quality of life. Uh, obviously, the best way to manage the symptoms of an illness would be to take the illness away. So sometimes we work with people to minimize their symptoms while they're having treatment to take their illness away completely. And sometimes we work with people where there isn't a treatment that will take the illness away, but at least we can take the feeling badness out of it to some extent. Mm -hmm. And we'll walk with you for as much of that as you need us to, and we'll dip in and out. So again, getting that, it doesn't have to be done by specialists Mm -hmm. message Mm -hmm. out there. We can come in and consult if you like, Mm -hmm. or we can just consult with your general practitioner or with your rheumatology team or with your esophageal cancer team Mm -hmm. as, as, and when we're needed. And if it gets really tricky, we might actually come in 
and walk with you and assess you directly and make some recommendations for a week or two, a month or two, mm -hmm. back out again. Mm -hmm. Or you might love us so much that we stay with you after that, mm -hmm. you know. But it's not about specialists, is it? It's about getting the information into, getting the philosophy into mm -hmm. care generally. So when I came into palliative care in 1986, what we thought was that we would educate ourselves out of a job within the next decade or two. So what happened? Well, I think two things happened. One is the problem that we're dealing with, which is how do you get people who are curers of illnesses to talk about not curing? And obviously, I've done that journey and I've been the person who's been trying to think of what trial could I get this person into so that I don't have to talk to them about no more treatment. I, I remember. And, and there's a different mindset, I think, when we're in palliative care, even if we're the same person, it's a different part of the journey. And it, it isn't as difficult for us because somebody else has introduced us. But I think the other thing that's happened is palliative care itself then started to realise how big the field of knowledge is. And what we've done is we've accumulated a body of knowledge, which we've extended by research. So now it is a specialism because it's too big for everybody to know it enough to be specialist in it. So it's I, I guess it's now where geriatrics was when I qualified, where 20 years before that, geriatrics had been a really strange thing where why would anybody want to specialise just in the care of old people? Mm -hmm. and, now, and now we're looking around going, this person needs a geriatrician. This is too complicated for general medicine. Mm -hmm. This person needs somebody who can weave all those strands together. We need that kind of thing, don't we? Where somebody's saying, gosh, this is really, really complicated. We're going to need to consult a palliative care team who can help us to decomplicate this. Mm -hmm. And then we can work out which strands of this we, we already know how to do mm -hmm. and which are the overarching difficult strands that actually we need a different body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So we might come in and work with somebody who's breathless, who's being looked after by a gastroenterology team, but we're very rarely going to be asked to deal with somebody who's breathless, who's being looked after by a respiratory team mm -hmm. because their bodies of knowledge are different. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're kind of... Um, we're the last of the generalists, aren't we? We, we and the geriatricians and primary care physicians are the, are the last of the generalist doctors. Everybody else is so specialised mm -hmm. that we need to go to them for their expertise and then transfer that expertise to people who are not being looked after by them. Yeah, it, it, you know, I love listening to you because um, it's just so refreshing to hear someone else say things in a different way that um, resonate, um, and make me think differently because I will admit to you that, um, you know, I've in, in the, I've only been working for 16 years in palliative care full-time. Um, and so you've had a longer career than I have, but somewhere in the last, I don't know, 50 years, I, I, I don't know. I can't help but think things have gotten out of control. We have specialized something that shouldn't be specialized. And we're still needed right now as palliative care specialists because of that. And because we now need to teach everyone else how to do it 
so we're still needed for decades. You and I are okay, but I agree like with the way you used to think, which is we need to educate so that we um, run ourselves out of a, out of a job. Um, shouldn't a cardiologist know how to take care of a patient with heart failure until their last breath? Why should I know more about that than the cardiologist? And if the GI specialist has questions about the breathlessness, call the respirologist who should know how to care for end stage um, breathlessness. I don't know, in a way, I feel like we have become, we've done what we were supposed to do. And now we need to deconstruct our specialty. But when I hear what you just said, Catherine, that the specialty has become more complicated, and we've accrued a huge body of knowledge around this care, and um, compare it to geriatrics and how they evolved. I think I will think about that a little bit more. And maybe it will give me a different perspective mm, of why so. we're still here as a specialty. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because it's that combination, isn't it, of knowledge and skills and attitude that each specialist brings with their specialism to a consultation. And increasingly what I was noticing before I stopped working to do campaigning instead was that consults quite often were not so much about physical symptom management. So certainly over the first 20 years that I was in palliative care, the symptom management questions got progressively more and more complicated. Mm -hmm. So to start up, to start off with, you could mm -hmm. go in and say, do you know, this morphine sensitive pain just needs that morphine liquid to be given every four hours instead of every six hours. Cause when you look at the half-life of morphine, that's mm -hmm. what you need to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then gradually, you know, you'd be going in and they'd be saying, right, we've got this really complicated pain. It doesn't seem to be opioid sensitive. We've titrated to the patient being unconscious with pinpoint pupils and they're still frowning and twitching. So mm -hmm. we've taken it back down again and we've had another thing. And we wonder if there's a neuropathic element and we've tried mm -hmm. this, we've tried that. So you start to see that the education focus of palliative medicine that was happening mm -hmm. the consults got more complicated because mm -hmm. people did more and more of the first and second and third mm -hmm. line things mm -hmm. themselves mm -hmm. and what we were being brought in to do was say sometimes you know what there isn't really something you haven't thought of here it is this mm -hmm. hard mm -hmm. sometimes that's what mm -hmm. was needed somebody mm -hmm. who was able to say this pain, we, we're going to have to have something that looks like a pain management program for this person. They are never not going to have pain. Mm -hmm. Or this nausea, um, actually you've excluded all the potential physical causes of nausea. And we're going to have to talk to this person about living a nauseated life. And actually that's a much harder ask than living a life mm -hmm. with pain because nausea mm -hmm. is so much it eats into your soul, doesn't it? It's really, really dysphoria-inducing. Um, or to be able to go along sometimes and just say, do you know, this pattern doesn't quite fit. Mm -hmm. What is going on here? What have we missed? And to, to just have the time to go back through the notes mm -hmm. in a way that is sufficiently informed broadly about mm -hmm. meds so that mm -hmm. we're noticing things. Mm -hmm. So, so there's something about the knowledge, but the skill set, I think, that we get 
uh, mm. invited for is we don't know how well how to communicate with this patient we're losing the faith of this patient because their symptoms are not getting better we don't really want you to mess with the symptoms we want to know what's going on what's wrong with the dynamic and very often their psychology complexities aren't they or they are ethical conundrums you know we could do this treatment for this person but we're not actually sure whether that's the right thing to do or um you know, this this person is is asking for a third opinion, fourth opinion, fifth opinion. They actually can't bear the situation they find themselves in. And medicine is not going to be able to answer their despair. How, how do we even deal with that? Um, so I think that we buy our place for the complex consultations mm-hmm. by the breadth of our body of knowledge. Mm-hmm. But we're actually standing on that to do something that is very rarely about the body of knowledge. It's about the physician-patient relationship. It's about the Mm -hmm. patient-family relationship. Mm -hmm. It's about the the ethics. It's Mm -hmm. about the the mismatch between expectations Mm -hmm. and what can be delivered. Mm -hmm. And it's about physician vulnerability to self-doubt and not being able to say, Mm -hmm. I don't think we can make Mm -hmm. this better. Mm -hmm. The, The piece that was building onto what both of you were saying was in some ways, you know, it isn't about the specialty. It's that medicine has just become so technological and, and you know, so there's so many machines and drugs and advances that we have, the more we move that way, the farther and farther we are away from the human and caring part of healthcare. And I think that's mm-hmm. across all specialties. And what you're, in some ways, what you're saying is we've lost the ability to even just have simple conversations or sit with people to say, like, this is bad. And there are un- unknowns ahead, and but I will journey with you. Yeah, Catherine, I'm just really listening to what you're saying. And I think, yeah, again, I'm going to think more about that because I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. I think where I get disillusioned is when we're asked to come in for what we see as the basics of mm-hmm. providing a palliative approach. And that's a lot of what we're asked to do or when there's an assumption that everyone else doesn't have to provide care in the last months or weeks. So let's hand them over to, you know, the palliative care specialist to help with constipation or, you know, whatever it is. That's Um, that's dispiriting. It's it's not just dispiriting, it's infuriating. Exactly. And so I think we're still operating that way here, a transfer of care to palliative care specialists for just all palliative care. But what you're describing is I think what I would have envisioned for our specialty is to move into a truly specialist role where we offer the things that you um, articulated um, that are still of great value and we can't expect all other specialists to be that eloquent and sophisticated with pulling the whole person together and um, affirming uh, what's happening or not happening or making connections where other physicians and nurses might not see the connections in the patient's story. Mm-hmm. I do want to work there. I want to yeah. work in, in that role, but yeah. I have to say that that's not, that that's rarely the role I find myself in, um, in my career. I'm more doing the palliative care that all other nurses and doctors, uh, 
ha have not been doing, except yeah. for the sophisticated conversations. I would say that that's where my sophistication comes in. Mm -hmm. But again, it's usually because people are so late in their journey and they're so twisted up with misconceptions and ideas and misunderstandings. And I'm expert at helping them untangle that. Um, but I'm tired of untangling things for people who could have had things never tangled from the beginning. So yeah, there's that. And all of that lost time in feeling awful when they need not have done. And eventually people saying, oh, this person's felt awful long enough. Let's get the palliative care team in rather than oh, this person isn't feeling good, let's sort it out now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then maybe one in 10 of those, after a few weeks of trying to sort it out and it still isn't sorted, you know what, let's get an expert now. Yeah, yeah. But it's, but it, yeah, I, I, it's really dispiriting when it's just, you know, constipation, can you sort it? That's, that's a violation of that person, isn't it? That they haven't been properly looked after so that, mm -hmm. so that their constipation didn't happen in the first place mm -hmm. or it was tackled really mm -hmm. early and adequately. Or and, even worse, not given information. Yeah. So it's just like constipation, not tackling the informational yeah. needs of the patient and family and letting that go so long until an expert has to come in to untangle it for them. Yeah, yeah. and I think we still have that problem here too. So we've been talking a lot about the experiences in the UK and Canada, and I want to know more about what led you to being a palliative care doctor and then to being a best-selling book author. I mean, we've read it. It's beautifully written. Can you share with our listeners what was the main takeaway message from your first book with the end in mind? So, so I spent my life saying palliative care is not end-of-life care. So it is a little bit embarrassing then to, at the end of my career, have written a book about dying. But when I first came into palliative care and discovered, as I've recounted in the book, that you can describe what ordinary dying looks like in a way that is genuine and is a pattern that people can get their brain around because how can you decide whether or not your ends of life care could be managed in your own home if you don't know what is going to happen to you during that period of your life yeah so you actually need to know that you're going to get more tired that you're going to spend a lot of time asleep that gradually it's going to be harder to do stuff so you're living in a, a three-story building and your bedroom's on one floor and your bathroom's on a different floor, hmm. that's an issue. It's not an issue now, but it's going to be an issue during that period. Let's have a think about it. Do we need to move the bed? Do we need to think about a commode? Neither of those things is acceptable. Okay, well, now we've really got to talk turkey. Hmm. Maybe you can't be in that house. Hmm. Um, do, do you really want to go and stay with your daughter who's got five children under the age of 10? Have you discussed that with your daughter? <laughs> so those, those sorts of things. And 30 years later, I was still meeting people who were terrified of what dying was going to be like, who still didn't know what it was going to be like. So again, that, that education thing just hasn't happened. There's been a complete mm -hmm. failure of public understanding of dying, compounded by us having removed it from peaceful dying at home to interventionist 
you know, death as a failure in hospital. Mm. And I think we are getting better in Britain at allowing dying to happen in hospital rather mm. than escalating interventions. And I think that from what I hear from my Canadian friends, you are better at it than the USA is. And that's partly driven by public attitudes and it's partly driven by the funding of the three different mm. systems. Mm. Um, but eventually I just thought, you know, somebody's got to do something about the public understanding of dying. So a bit like you've been thinking, mm -hmm. why are we doing all this here? Why are we not doing it then? And why isn't somebody else doing it then? Why are we doing it here? Because they haven't done it then. I think somebody, somebody's got to do something about the public understanding of dying. And gradually, you know, I'm, I'm thinking it needs to be somebody who's seen it a lot, somebody who's been around it, not just in hospices, but in real places where it happens, mm -hmm. in people's homes, mm -hmm. in the hospital, who understands the psychological nuances, who, mm -hmm. oh, God, I'm describing myself. I just, oh, this is awful. I don't want to be the person who has to do this. So I then struggled with that for a little while. And then I just, and then I had the, the tipping point story. Mm -hmm again is in the book although it's not described as the tipping point story mm -hmm. of a family coming in with a really really elderly parent blue lighted into hospital who collapsed at home and again why are we doing this now this person's been a creaking gate for years they've got um <laughs> it, they, they, their liver works great you know, everything else is is under one of the ologists in one of the hospitals in this city. Um, why was there not already an understanding with this family, with this man, that at some point he might collapse with a stroke or with an MI and that that would be a terminal event for him? And he had choices at that point. Mm -hmm. He could be blue lighted into hospital, but he need not be. Mm -hmm. And other, this could have happened in a different way. But they had never talked about it mm -hmm. because their father was only 97. So why would you talk about it? Mm -hmm. And that was the tipping point for me. I just thought, you know what, somebody, somebody's got to do this and I, I can't sit back and watch this mm -hmm. any longer. So mm -hmm. that's when I thought I'm going to try and find a way of doing something about public understanding of dying. And I started reaching out to organisations that were already doing that. I had no illusion that I was going to stand up and do it all on my own. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's an organisation, there's an umbrella organisation in, um, in Britain called Dying Matters. Mm -hmm. And there's slightly different organisations in Wales and Scotland, but the England version is Dying Matters. And they have lots of the palliative care organisations working with them and you know, so I, I, I talked to them and a uh, variety of other things. And then I just had a really, really good stroke of luck. Ooh, I feel like we're going to hear your origin story of how you became a best-selling author. Ooh, tell us more. So on my last day at work before I retired, or the last week at work before I retired, I got a phone call from BBC Radio. Um to say we're looking for an expert in death and somebody's given us your name and there's a bit of me that's thinking palliative care is not death and there's a bit of me that's thinking 
this is really interesting. Okay. <laughs> Do you not know how many experts in death you've got in London where the BBC is? And I'm in <laughs> Northumberland, which is about as far away as you can be in England from London. Um, so I went to do this radio interview and it turned out to be a really, really interesting thing. And the reason I'd been <laughs> named was that the editor of this programme needed an expert in death, phoned her sister, who's a friend of mine, who oh. directs the breast cancer screening for the north of England. She said, oh, you need my friend Kath. So I went and did this interview on the radio and it was heard by a literary agent who, during talking, I told a story because that's the way we mm -hmm. explain things, isn't it? Um, and he, he got in touch. He said, I heard you tell a story. Have you got other stories? Have you ever thought about writing a book? Mm. That's the book. So it was just very, very lucky. And it is, it, I've, having spent a whole career saying, just because you've seen the palliative care team, you're not obliged to die. Mm -hmm. We are actually about living. We're mm -hmm. about symptom management. And because a lot of the people we're looking after have illnesses that aren't going to be cured. Sure. We see a lot of people during their dying, but we're not seeing them because they're dying. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing them because they're living up to the point that they're dying. And that's mm -hmm. really, really important. So it is a bit embarrassing that I've written a book about dying, isn't it? But it's interesting to hear, though, what, what I think I'm also hearing, though, is that for some of us, I guess, even though we've tried so hard to reposition palliative care away from dying, maybe we're running away from what Cien says is the, the cow we need to ride to get to the horse, meaning that yeah. if, if we can talk about death and dying, maybe then we can talk about how to make the earlier chapters better. Can I follow up and ask you directly, Catherine? You are on a mission to teach people about ordinary dying and not be afraid of talking about it and naming it. And in some ways, we are also talking about it openly, but I feel sometimes we're using different language because we wanted people to come along much earlier in their journey, closer to diagnosis. And so we sometimes use metaphors to bring them along. I don't feel like we're using euphemisms or shying away from it. But should we really just be embracing the terms palliative care and death and dying? Or is there something to be said about meeting people where they are at and building a ladder for them to meet us when they are ready, so to speak? I think that's a really great question. I think when we're talking to each other, I think when we're talking to our colleagues, I think when we're writing, we need to use grown-up words proper words and we need to give our specialty the dignity of its title and not fudge it because it's the proximity to death not the title palliative care that puts people off and if we give it a different title you know supportive care in two years time we won't be able to talk about supportive care so we've got to stop playing with the language mm. um, I think though for patients and for bereaved people they should be allowed to choose their own language. Who are we to police their language? And you will recognize that we meet lots of people who actually use humor um, and they, they use metaphor to talk about their journey. Um, and I don't know about you, Doc, but I kind of feel like I'm over, I've got over that hill now and I'm just worried about how fast I'm going to roll down it. 
okay, well, I can have a conversation with you now about how quickly you're going to roll down that hill, whether there might be some level bits as you go down, which prickle patch or mud patch you're hoping to avoid on the way down. If that's your metaphor, I can come with you into your metaphor and that's absolutely fine. What do you hope is at the bottom? Mm. Mm. What would it look like? What will it sound like? I'm a little disappointed because I thought that I was like the greatest until I'm like listening to Catherine and I'm like, I'm not as good as you are <laughs> just with your language and your euphemisms and your, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, do you know, I think, I think my greatest contribution is, and I bet you do this too, Sammy. I'd really love to see you in action. I think my greatest contribution is to be able to talk about this really deep, important stuff, including preferences about end-of-life care and who'll be with mm -hmm. you and what are you worried about mm -hmm. in the same voice that you use for ordering vegetables. Yeah, exactly. Yeah? That you don't have the special tilted head. Yeah. Using a special breathy voice. It's just like, here we are. This is a thing that happens to people. And let's talk about it. And I'm really, I can see, even as I'm talking to you about it, that it's hard for you. And we can stop if you don't want to continue now. You know, this is entirely up to you. I, I've got the information if you want it. And it's not a secret. It's, it's yours for when you're ready. <laughs> Catherine, when you go into your role playing, sometimes I don't realize you're not talking to me for a second. <laughs> you just said, oh, I can see this is hard for you. And I'm thinking, oh, it is hard. Oh, she's talking about an example. <laughs> um, I'm very curious um, about your second book. And I know this is a secret, but do tell what what's the basic angle? Well, funnily enough, it's about conversations. Oh, I'm not surprised. And it's called Listen, because actually everybody thinks that the secret of these really awkward conversations is talking. And, and we know, actually, it's really all about listening, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the body language. And, my, and yeah. yeah. And my, my publishers didn't want a second death book. Yeah, mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. You do know what I do, don't you? Um, <laughs> So some of them are some of the scenarios. So it's it's showing by stories again. Mm -hmm. There's probably a bit more writing around the stories in this mm -hmm. one than in the first book. Um, but and and some of them are from uh, my palliative care practice. There's a couple from my cognitive therapy practice, mm -hmm. um, and some just from life. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I think the two of the two of the stories I've enjoyed telling the most are stories that other people told as part of their case presentations during their cognitive therapy skills training mm. course, when mm. they have to come back and show how they're using questioning and listening, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. testing assumptions. And what they do is absolutely remarkable. Mm. Really, really mm. humbling to listen to people coming out of their comfort zone to try mm. doing something a different way and then reporting back how spectacularly it has succeeded because listening really does succeed, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we, we are fixers in healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, don't you worry about that. I'll fix it all for you. 
mm-hmm. um, and to actually get them out of that. So, gosh, that sounds really, really difficult. What mm-hmm. are you going to do about that then? Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. You know, Liz used to, Liz Latimer used to always say, hurry up and listen. <laughs> what she used to say. Yeah. What's her famous line? Hurry up and listen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, that's right. There's a wild Hamilton, Ontario connection here. I think, Catherine, you told me once that you actually spent time in Hamilton very early in your career and met Dr. Liz Latimer, um, who was also a mentor to Sammy early in her career. I spent a fantastic morning with her in a, I think it was actually a radiology seminar room somewhere in the, somewhere in the medical school with a group of students doing a communication skills training session and they were fantastic um and they uh they had this game where they would go around in a circle and she would be the patient and they would ask the questions and then they get stuck and they go you know time out and we debrief a little bit and it was absolutely wonderful just watching what they did and how she was training them to listen, ask questions, be curious, unpick it, mm-hmm. un- unpeel it like an onion. Mm-hmm. Because deep in there, there will either be the solution that the person already knows for themselves or mm-hmm. the question that they can't answer for themselves, mm-hmm. which is the question now for us to move forward with mm-hmm. together. And it was it was remarkable. It was fantastic to watch her teaching. And, you know, just to come full circle. Um, yeah, we just have not, even though we had people like Liz Latimer and you, Catherine, doing all this beautiful teaching for so many decades. Um, you know, like you became impatient to share with the citizens of the world, we became impatient with teaching healthcare providers, even though we know it's necessary and pivoted directly to the consumer, the patients and families with this podcast. And in essence, what we think we've done um, is taught patients and families how to make sure and ensure that they will tease a palliative approach out throughout their illness if they're not going to be offered it from the healthcare provider Mm -hmm. side for all the reasons we've talked about. We didn't say that's what we were doing in the podcast. Um, In fact, I was very clear with CN. I said, CN, we cannot talk too much about the P word. Um, (laughs) You know, contrary to what you were saying before, I said, you know, we'll be shot out of the water. My own sister said to me, you know, I said, we're going to create a book that's what to expect when you're dying. Do you know the book, what to expect when you're expecting for pregnant women? It was very popular. So we said, okay, what to expect when you're dying? And my sister said, that's disgusting. Why would anyone want to pick up a book like that? And so I told CN, we're never going to talk about that. We're only going to talk. (laughs) We're going to erase all of that. But what we're going to do is in a sneaky way, give patients and families the skill to get palliative care but they're not going to have to ask for the P word. We're just going to teach them how to suck it out by teaching them what questions to ask Mm -hmm. and to be hopefully fearless and um, persistent and um, ask for meaning of 
what they're hearing. And, you know, and so arming them with information so that they get a palliative approach without even knowing they're getting it. (laughs) And so the first, the first eight episodes, we don't say a word about palliative care barely, but then in the ninth episode, we talk about when time is running out and Mm -hmm. we finally sort of blow the whistle on ourselves and talk about dying and palliative care um, and, and where it fits into all of this. But we felt we had to take that approach because yeah, of I th- I th- Yeah, I think you're right. You know, eventually we just got to go home with the ball, haven't we? So, you know, they're, yeah. they're not playing. So yeah. come on, we'll play with you. Yeah. And actually, healthcare's forgotten what it's about. It's become about healthcare. Mm-hmm. And healthcare is about people, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. about keeping people well and making sick people feel well enough to enjoy still being. That's what mm-hmm. healthcare is about. Mm-hmm. But the caring, yeah, we've forgotten yeah. the caring part. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But you've said so many of the things that resonate with us. Just that mm-hmm. last thing about we have the information. It's there. It's yours to know. We've mm-hmm. said that ourselves a million times about this. There's no crystal ball. Every time someone says, oh, there's no crystal ball, it just drives us insane because yeah. that's, that's, such a, that's such a slam the door in your face when people are asking questions like, tell me more about what it looks like. Oh, there's no crystal ball. That's like, you're really, you know, saying poo-poo, like, you know, I'm shutting it's, you down. It's about that... Um, there's almost a deification of hope, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And people are so frightened that saying you won't get better removes hope. Whereas mm-hmm. in fact, it simply tailors hope. We've got to cut the cloth, haven't you? Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. with, with what's left, what, what are the hopes? And if we start the conversation with what we can't do, we, we turn the whole thing upside down. If we start the conversation with what matters most to you, well, most people at the beginning of a serious illness journey, what matters most to me is can you make me better, Doc? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we hope that we can and we have got all of these different treatments that we can try. And we're not silly and you're not silly. You know that probably most people get better from this but some people don't so can we talk about your best hope and your worst dread Mm -hmm. and then can we think about what we've got that we can offer you that tries to make sure that what happens is as much as it can be Mm -hmm. like your best hope Mm -hmm. as little as possible like your worst Mm -hmm. dread and if things change if new treatments come along if your disease status changes we're going to have to have this conversation again and again and -hmm. again along the journey. This is not a once and for all conversation. This is the first time. And I really hope you're going to be well enough that we end up having this conversation lots and lots and lots of times as Mm -hmm. you live with this illness. Mm -hmm. But at some point we might have to have the conversation, which is actually about there's not much living left to do. And you might even know now what you want me to know about that, but certainly by then, you'll know me well enough that we can have that conversation. Why would you give that conversation to a different team of people? Comes back to what you were saying at the beginning, Sammy. Why, why would a cardiologist not know how to look after mm-hmm. a person dying with heart failure? And the answer is they do know, mm-hmm. but they don't know. Mm-hmm. They know what to do about the heart. They know how to keep the electrolytes in as least deranged order as possible. They know what to do about 
the swollen ankles and the ascites. But that's not what's wrong with the person, is it? And that's the difficulty. It's, it's that fusion of illness, person, psyche, spiritual mm -hmm. self, mm -hmm. being unable to function despite having heart failure. Mm -hmm. And, and, and cardiologists do lots of very, very clever things. But maybe that clever thing is ours. Maybe we have to stop being embarrassed that we're really good at end-of-life care. But it's not the only thing that we do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I can't, I can't. I'm so happy that CN recorded this hour because I think I'm going to go to sleep listening to it once a week. <laughs> well, because you're making me reconnect with my specialty just a little bit there's lots for me to think about um, in terms of our most modern role and admitting what we do well and what we don't need to be doing mm. and and moving into that instead of running away from it maybe mm -hmm. but it but it is really really hard isn't it? i i had a, a crisis similar to yours about 20 years in of what why are we still doing this like this? So probably about, the, in fact, about the same point that you're at now, if you're 16 years in. But by then, even, it was obvious that the body of knowledge was growing and growing. And we've got, um, we've got research associations, haven't we? And we've got people doing wonderful, original research. Uh, we had no idea that palliative care was actually going to save money and prolong life when... Mm -hmm. When I went into it, or when you went into it, all of that has come out. Um, we've got ranges of treatments for things and options for treatments that we didn't have all that time ago. And probably those things wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been a specialty of palliative care, even though I don't know what it's like in Canada, but mm. we, we get less than 1% of the annual health research budget for palliative care mm -hmm. in the UK. Mm -hmm. Even right. even though it's the single universal outcome is death, mm -hmm. we're still not going to research it. We've done a little bit better with public awareness during COVID because obviously we've had a horrible time mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. during COVID. And I'm not going to talk politics at any point because then I really will get cross. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's an ill wind that blows no good at all. People have realised they're mortal. People are, are talking about dying. People are talking about the importance of being with their dying people while they're dying. Mm -hmm. And healthcare professionals have had to replace families at bedsides, which means they've become familiar again with the trajectory of dying, which actually mm. they're not taught. You know, you take young people who don't come from a population that doesn't understand dying and you take them into your nursing schools and your medical schools you teach them how to stop people from dying and then they don't know what dying is like when mm -hmm. they have to look after those people mm -hmm. so it, we've made some progress in being better bedside attendants for the dying mm -hmm. um, and I've never given so many talks as I've given in this last year about talking about talking about dying mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's starting to happen mm -hmm. but you know I, I kind of moved myself out of palliative care I have to start every 
every talk by saying my palliative care colleagues will want me to say it's really important that you know this is not a specialty that's about dying mm -hmm. just happens that we see quite a lot of it yeah. sorry yeah you know, you have such an important thing to say that it's this conversation that nobody wants to have. And so, you know, we're riding behind you to be like, yeah. we're, if Captain Man is successful. We're your new fans. Oh, well, you oh, know, you feel like family already. It's really, really <laughs> lovely. And, and what we're discovering, of course, is this isn't a conversation nobody wants to have. It's a conversation right. everybody wants to have yeah. that their doctors won't let them. That's right. Yeah. Conversation that doctors don't want to have. I just want to say, Catherine, it has been wonderful talking with you again. Thank you so much. When you shared your tipping point story, it made me think of Sam and me when we got started. And I truly believe everything happens for a reason and the world is speaking to us in a whisper. And so this is your mission in life and it's ours too. And the fact that you had your BBC interview on your last day of work, that was no accident. You know, it was, a, it was faded and the world was trying to give you this platform. Uh, for your first book, With the End in Mind, and now your second book, Listen, which is available right now. And so I hope our listeners check it out. But everything is falling into place. And I'm so happy that our paths are crossing now. Yeah, it is very sweet. But isn't this the thing that we see with our patients all of the time, that mm -hmm. they are doing that retrospective of their lives mm -hmm. and all that stuff that seemed completely random as we move through life. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, when you turn around and you look backwards, there's a massive straight line of how we got to here. Yeah. It just never felt like that as we were yeah. going through it. I'm so um, happy to have met you, Catherine, and feel so privileged to have spent this last hour and a half with you. Uh, honestly, it feels like such an honor. Um, thank you so much. Well, that's very, very kind of you. That feels very, very strange because you know what? I don't um, quite know how this has happened and I feel yeah. like a huge imposter but it's it's love it's lovely to just be meeting people in Canada who share that that sense of this is this is a really important endeavor that we're engaged on mm -hmm. and it's about the people that we serve and not the people we're trying to work around to get yes. to them to serve them yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. thank you thank you well, so lovely to meet you <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.